you for showing us some aspects of the future. We're thankful that you are working out your plan, accomplishing your purposes, because you reign supreme over all of your creation. May we believe that and live it like that. May we know the future that you have revealed. May it be a help, an encouragement, an exhortation. May you use your word in our life as you see fit and accomplish your purposes today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, let's read the words of the living God from 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's our text for today, coming from 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 10. These are the words of the living God. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, that's 1 Peter and 2 Peter, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, with water and perished. But, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it, will be exposed. My friends, these are the words of the living God. And as Peter has been doing, he's reminding us, he wants us to know some things, because God wants us to know some things. And and in this text, God wants you to know the future. Obviously, you're not going to know everything about the future. God hasn't revealed His entire mind to us. But thank God, We do know part of God's mind, part of what's going to happen in the future. So let's look at the text here. got a series of questions I'm going to just ask today and then attempt to answer from the text. First of all, why did God write this letter? (laughs) Well, he just comes right out and tells us why he wrote this letter. First of all, God wants to stir up our minds. He wants to stir up our minds. 
The idea is he wants to stimulate your minds. Peter's purpose, the human author, of course, is Peter, and he's trying to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Whereas, opposed to false teachers and scoffers, they're trying to get you to think unwholesome. So why do I say that uh, he, he's trying to stir up our minds? He wants to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Because that's what, the, you look at your text there, the word sincere means wholesome. It means uncontaminated. What's the point? Well, Peter's words of encouragement and warning are supposed to produce something in you. It's supposed to do a work in you. It's supposed to cause you to think a certain way. Wholesome thinking, uncontaminated thinking, to keep you from letting the false teachers lure you into their unwholesome way of thinking. See, that's how they bait you. They trap you with false, contaminated, unwholesome thinking. And so, to combat that, Peter wants to stir your minds. He wants to stimulate you to some wholesome thinking. That's why this letter has been written. There's a second reason why God wrote this letter. To cause us to remember. To cause us to remember. See, we we have this continual problem of forgetting. Sometimes it's deliberate, like it was for some of these people here Peter writes about. So we need to remember. Remember what, though? Well, verse 2, look at it. It introduces us to two potential areas of contaminated thinking, some unwholesome thinking that you need to be aware of. Number one, Peter mentions the predictions of the prophets. That's the first potential area of contaminated thinking. See, this is referring here in verse 2 to primarily to those sections of your Old Testament that talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. See, even in the Old Testament, before Christ's first coming, the Old Testament predicted there would be a first coming and a second coming. Don't lose sight of that, my friends. Yeah, it's been about 2,000 years, but He is coming. Well, essentially, Peter said, don't overlook those prophecies. They are real prophecies. They are true prophecies. Yes, it's been a while even longer than Peter's day. But the Old Testament has made a lot of promises. And in the New Testament, we see those promises being kept. Not all of them have been fulfilled yet. And so don't allow the false teachers to persuade you that Christ will not return, even though it's been about 2,000 years. Don't forget that Christ Himself even said the Old Testament pointed to Him. It's, it's, it's all about Him. For example, look what Jesus said to the disciples that were traveling on the road to Emmaus here in Luke 24 verse 27 this is what Jesus said he said or well sorry what the Bible says it does quote Jesus but it says beginning with Moses and all the prophets so Moses being the first five books of your Bible the prophets pretty self-explanatory it says that Jesus he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself and then in verse 20, 44, sorry, 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, the, of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus says these promises will be fulfilled. 
They all haven't been fulfilled yet. So does God lie? Or does he tell the truth? If he tells the truth, that means there's some promises that are yet to come. So Peter says, this is a potential area of contaminated thinking. He wants us to remember these predictions of the prophets in the Old Testament. Don't forget them. They are real and they are true. Number two, Peter mentions a second area where we could possibly be contaminated in our thinking. And it, notice verse two says, the command of Christ. The command of Christ. That's the second area that needs protection in our minds. By the way, notice it, it's a singular command. There's no S. It's singular. One command. So it can't be talking about the Ten Commandments. It can't be talking about the, uh, you know, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws that are in the Old Testament. So what command could this be talking about? I've pondered this. I tend to think, I'm I'm hesitating to say this dogmatically because Peter doesn't come right out and explain himself here, but based on the context, I believe the context tells us it's probably referring to the second coming of Christ, that Christ is coming again, and what do we need to do with that? Well, Christ and the apostles talked about this, that Christ is coming again. What do you do with that? Well, for example, look what Jesus says through the Apostle Matthew. Matthew 24, verse 42. It's a command. Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So because Jesus is returning, what do we need to do? The command is stay awake. Stay awake. Be ready. Be watching. Looking. He is coming. Be ready for His return. Over and over again, the Apostles talking about what Christ said, have explained this command to us. And so I believe that's what Peter's talking about here when he talks about the commandment of Christ. So let me ask you, my friends, is your thinking being contaminated by scoffers and by false teachers and even, even some genuine, sincere, well-meaning Christians, sometimes their thinking's a little contaminated? Watch out for that contaminated, unwholesome way of thinking that might be able to creep into your mind. Another question to think about is, are you believing God's promises? Even though it's been approximately 2,000 years, do you still believe what the Old Testament said about Christ's second coming? And if not, what are you going to do about it? If you're tempted to be contaminated and go to these unwholesome thoughts and not believe God's promises, what are you going to do about it? Well, you need to do what Romans 12, verse 2 says. First of all, don't allow yourself to be pressed into worldly thinking, into the world's mold. That's the negative command. Don't, don't do that. How do you get out of that? How do you stop that? that world pressing you into its mold and thinking its philosophies and beliefs, you have to renew your mind. Romans 12.2 says, renew your mind. The Scriptures are, are powerful and able to do that, my friends. So if you're not in the Scriptures, you're not studying, meditating, memorizing Scripture, you're 
you're you're in trouble. You're going to you're going to be tempted to not believe God's promises. You'll be tempted to be contaminated and, and have unwholesome ways of thinking, uh, particularly in regard to Christ. So why is God stirring up our minds? He says that's his uh, one of his purposes here. Why is God stirring up our minds? Number 1, well God wants you to know that scoffers are going to attack you. Scoffers will come, Peter says. Now, most people, if you look at verse, well, first of all, look at verse 3. It says, knowing this first of all. By the way, it, it's not chronologically. It just priority-wise, Peter says, this is what I want to address. Priority here is, know this, that the scoffers will come. Now, most people in Peter's day and ours follow false teachers, and they consider biblical teaching to be something that's foolish. But notice the prediction that Peter gives here. Peter's not a false prophet. He says, scoffers will come. Now, they came in his day, and they've been coming in ever since Peter's day, and they're here today. They are here. Now, what is a scoffer? Let's make sure we understand this. A scoffer is someone who makes fun of somebody else or something or some some truth doctrine uh, in this case, it's it's truth from Scripture. Scoffers will make fun of it. They they attack it. They mock it. They deride it. They 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 just don't like it. And so, when are these scoffers going to come? Well, Peter says in the last days. There's some confusion over the, what is the last days. So let me make sure we're clear here. The last days refers to all those days between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So between his first coming and second coming are the last days. So it started in Peter's way back in Jesus' day and been going on ever since then. So that means, guess what? You're in the last days now, aren't you? We are in the last days right now. So my friends, why is God stirring up our minds? He wants you to be ready for these scoffers that are that are going to come and attack. He wants you to be thinking properly. Thinking wholesome thoughts so that you're ready for the attack. And number two, God does not want us to believe lies. Doesn't want us to believe particularly lies of these scoffers, as verse four says. The scoffers say things like, where's the promise of his coming? <laughs> Basically, to, to the, the sum of their scoffing is, uh, to paraphrase Peter, they're, they're basically saying, hey, how in the world can you Christians believe this stuff? How can you believe that rubbish? I mean, you think Jesus is going to come back? Ha! I mean, he, that was a long time ago. Yeah, he lived, he taught, but he died. And, and that's it. As far as they're concerned, everything's just going to stay the same. Nothing is going to change. In fact, history's just plodding along just as it has for thousands of years. Nothing's going to change. That's the way a scoffer talks. And it can be quite convincing if you don't know Scripture. If you don't know the promises of God, you can fall prey to this kind of an attack. But my friends, you see the, the mockers, the scoffers have a problem. They're observing the historical and the natural events of the present, and then they carry that over to the past. They assume that everything has 
that, that has been is going to continue to be the same. Nothing's going to change. Now, the fancy big $10 term for this is called uniformitarianism. You don't need to know that, but uh, if you if you read that, that's what they're talking about. Uni, one. There's, there's a unity, just this oneness in uniformitarianism. It just assumes an unbroken continuity of cause and effect in history, and this chain of events is just going to continue unbroken all the way into the future. By the way, wedded to this idea is the notion of materialism. Now, now materialism in this sense is just that the physical universe is all that exists. There's nothing else except what you can see and feel, touch, handle. And one more oversized word for you today is anti-supernaturalism. Anti-supernaturalism just assumes there's no supernatural beings, especially God, that, you know, God, God's not going to interrupt the course of human history. He's the, He's the divine clockmaker, so to speak. Maybe you've heard that terminology. You know, the divine clockmaker who makes the clock, winds it up and lets it go, and then exits history and has no more to do with history. Well, that's what some people think. God's not going to interrupt the course of human history. He's not going to make any changes, not large changes or small changes. And often this gets coupled with atheism, which is just the belief that there's no such thing as an act of God existing in the universe, accomplishing His purposes. No such thing. And so, this is who the scoffers tend to be. This is what they tend to believe. This is what they preach. This is their gospel, if you will. You need to be aware of this. Sometimes they even show up in Christian schools and seminaries and teach pastors these very things, sadly. And then the pastors go to the churches and the pulpits and they preach this sort of thing. Peter says we shouldn't believe this. We need to know this. Be ready for this kind of an attack. So what do we need to know? Number three, God wants us to remember history. History is... His story, some have said. It's God's story. Well, if you look at verse 5 and 6, there's two great cataclysmic events that Peter writes about that show that we need to remember history. And so the false teachers, in their quest to avoid this doctrine of God's judgment, deliberately, the Scripture says, notice, they're ignoring these two major cataclysmic events, which, of course, refers to creation and the flood. And notice the phrase in verse 5. It says, the heavens existed long ago. And that, of course, is referring to creation. You can read that in Genesis chapter 1. So creation, if you will, is was God stepping into this emptiness. He, he brought the universe into existence. And by the way, not by uniformitarianism, <laughs> but God did this instantaneously. It was an explosive event in a way. Does it in six days of creation. Everything has not gone along 
just in the same consistency from the beginning. There, there, yes, there is variation. It's not this evolutionary process. It was done in six 24-hour days. God creates the whole universe and He creates it mature and complete. And he says, it was very good. And then Peter says in verse 5, the earth was formed out of water and through water. So what's he saying? Well, the earth's formed between two realms of watery mass. I don't know what you believe, but I personally believe there was this water canopy over the earth. And during the early part of the creation week, God collects the upper waters into this canopy around the whole earth. And then the lower waters would be things like underwater reservoirs. It would include rivers, lakes, seas, and so forth. And so God creates this this huge, vast amount of water. Of course, most of the earth is is water. But then in verse 6, it says the, the, the second great divine cataclysm that defeats this whole idea of uniformitarianism that you know, the earth's just going on the same as it always has been, was the universal flood. So God creates water, and He uses the water to bring this deluge. The universal flood that drowned the whole earth. And according to Genesis chapter 7, you can read about the flood there. The flood occurred from two directions, it says. So the the water canopy fell, water within the earth came up. So the the, the bursting open of all these sources of water just cracking down on the earth, coming together. So the breakup of the canopy hit the water that was falling. And so so water falling, water coming up, just sends God sending all this water from above, just crashing down on the earth. It must have been amazing if, if you're able to see it and live. But the deluge was so cataclysmic, the Bible says that all the inhabitants of, of the earth were destroyed except for eight people. Because they obeyed God, they built this huge ark, and God in the ark, God protected them from the worldwide flood, protected the representation of every kind of animal as well. And so the point of remembering history is this, my friends. These two great events are clear proof that the world is not in a uniformitarian process. The world has changed. There have been some dramatic changes. Massive changes. It has not continued as it always has been. That's, and so God wants us to remember history so we can recognize that. Obviously we weren't there. God was. And He informs us of it. What else does God want us to know? He wants us to know the future. He wants us to know the future. In verse 7, he tells us a little bit about the future. He says, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, notice, he says, The present world that we live on right now, this earth, the planet earth, is reserved for a future judgment, which... Notice, is going to come by the Word of God. Just as creation came by the Word of God, the flood came by the Word of God, God's judgment upon the earth, this fire 
fiery judgment will also come by the word of God. So in the future, God's going to destroy the heavens and the earth by fire, not by flood. So every time you see that rainbow in the sky, you can remember God's promise. He's not going to destroy the earth again by water. He says he's going to destroy it by fire. So the whole of creation, if you will, is is a potential firebomb. Just uh, just due to, to the very nature of how God has made His creation. So God can disintegrate the whole universe in, in, in an explosion of atomic energy if He chooses to. And so the earth, He says, is waiting for this day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So may I, my friends, don't forget. God's going to deal with the ungodly. They're not going to get away with it. These false teachers, these scoffers, they may seem to be getting away with it now, but they won't in the future. They won't. It'll be terrible judgment for them. But you say, well, what what about the Christians? Do they get to endure the same judgment as the unbelievers? I don't believe so. The godly are not going to be present on the earth when God judges the earth by fire. There's promises in Scripture that show there's there's a separating of the sheep from the goats. They don't... Anyway, let me just give you some of these scriptures. For example, First Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says that Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Of course, the us is referring to the believers, the church. And then in chapter 5 verse 9 it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just... So the, the context talking about the future in, in Thessalonians, God is concerned about His, His people, His, His church. They're not going to endure the same judgments that the unbelievers will. Alright? And you say, well, well, how do you know this? And when, when is God's judgment going to, to happen? When are, when's this fiery judgment going to come? Well, the best way I know how to explain this to you is just do a very quick ticky tour through Revelation. If you take Revelation as basically chronological, I think you, you, you should be able to see this. When is the fiery judgment going to happen? Well, Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are all about these churches. It's the, the church age, if you will. And we still live in this church age. These were real churches, seven churches, in Asia, Asia Minor, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Christ had a word to say to these churches, as He has a word to say to churches today. We still live in this church age. And then you come into chapter 4, you get a little view of what it's like in heaven before the throne of God, and you come to chapter 5, and we're introduced to the one who is who is able to open the divine judgments of the tribulation period. Chapter 5 says that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy to open the scroll. You say, what's going to come out of this scroll? What what judgments are going to come out of the scroll? Well, that's all chapter 6 through 19. Chapter 6 through 19 is the seven-year tribulation when God dumps His judgment on the unbelieving world. By the way, as you read chapter 6 through 19, notice the church is absent. The church is gone. 
which is one of the reasons I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Church doesn't exist in chapters 6 through 19, because I believe the church is in heaven. So you come to the end, end of chapter 19 and you find, well, there's a great judgment. The battle of Armageddon takes place. It's not really a battle, it's a slaughter. When Jesus comes back and all you Christians riding on white horses, look forward to that day, riding with Jesus on these white horses, coming back. You're not a part of the battle, but you get to witness it. Jesus will deal with, with all the unbelievers, the Antichrist. They'll be dealt with at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Then you come into chapter 20. You have a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. That's chapter 20. And then you get into the end of chapter 20, and, and uh, you see that uh, Satan is released. God allows him to get out of his chains, and he is defeated yet again, and he's, he is thrown into the lake of fire. And then chapter 20 ends with this, this great white throne judgment for all unbelievers. And they will stand before God. And notice, God is going to deal with this present earth and this sky. Because if you look at Revelation 20, verse 11, the Apostle John sees this great white throne and him who's seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So God wipes out the present universe, because chapter 21, verse 1, God says, I will make a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So at the end of the millennium is the time when the great fiery judgment will come on the earth. So Peter doesn't tell you when this fire is going to come and destroy the earth. But Revelation tells us it's at the end of the millennium. And then God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth there in chapter 21. So that's a very quick uh, tour through Revelation. So for the most part, you can take that chronologically. So currently we're in the church age, awaiting a rapture of the church, which will lead us into the seven-year tribulation. At the end of that, you have the Battle of Armageddon, which leads you into the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. At that, God will, Jesus will deal with Satan. He's going to destroy the universe and then make a new heaven and new earth. And the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, will come down. You can read that in Revelation 22. It will come down as a bride adorned for her husband. And that will be in that, in that new Jerusalem. All believers have a room. John 14, Jesus said, I will make you a room in my Father's house. In there will be your mansion for all eternity, my friends, for all believers. In the New Jerusalem, there is a massive house ready for you that Jesus Christ is creating for you. But then the scoffers come along and say, well, why? If Christ is coming, you guys say Christ is coming. I mean, it's been like 2,000 years. You know, That's a long time. Why is Christ taking so long? If he's coming, why is he taking so long? Look at verse 8. Go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 8. We see that God is timeless. That's the first reason. <laughs> because God's timeless. 
Verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now, there are some Christians who, well-meaning Christians, who like to take that and kind of turn the Bible into codes and come up with some timetable for what God is doing. That is not the purpose of this verse, okay? So why does Peter mention the theological truth here? Well, because the scoffers were basing their whole point on earth's timetable, suggesting that a long delay in Christ's coming is implying that God doesn't keep His promises. (laughs) Hey, it's been 2,000 years. He's not coming. So from the perspective of finite human beings, though, God often appears to take His time. We might wonder, man, it is. it does seem to be taking a long time. It often seems God is slow. And some people want to help God out and kind of push Him along. Hey, you need to fulfill your promises. We want to rush God's plan along. But God doesn't do things on our timetable, does He? God does things according to His timetable. He is accomplishing His purposes. And by the way, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about rescuing and rewarding His people. He does. In fact, you ought to come away with this thinking just the opposite. Peter claims that God delays His judgment because He's making room for His mercy. He's making room for His mercy. And that's that's the very next point He makes. Not only is God timeless, He he is beyond time. He's not bound by time. Peter says that God is patient. God is patient. That's the point of verse 9 when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Well, the scoffers didn't understand anything about the future, it seemed. They didn't understand God either. They didn't know who God was didn't understand God's eternality and didn't understand His mercy. Now, why was God delaying the return of Christ? And this is what's called here the day of the Lord. Well, it wasn't because He's unable to act. It's not because God's unwilling to act. He, He wasn't being tardy. God wasn't off schedule. He wasn't messed up by, you know, what's happening on the earth. Nobody on earth, by the way, has the right to decide when God must act. He acts when He wants to act. God is sovereign in all things. He he doesn't need us to prod Him. He doesn't need counsel from us. (laughs) He is wise in accomplishing His purposes. So this verse does confuse many people because, number one, they don't understand who the you, verse 9, is talking about. Who's the you referring to? Let me give you a little hint. Always interpret Scripture within context. (laughs) Okay? Context will help you determine what it means. Right? So who is the you? Well, if you interpret within context, the context will help you to answer who the you is because Peter's already been talking about the beloved. He's been writing to these believers. He... Chapter 1, he already said, hey, know your salvation. He said, know the Scriptures. Know your enemies. 
Now here in chapter 3, he's saying you can know the future. He's, God's revealed some about the future. Hey, you believers, you elect. That's who he's talking to. So let me help you out. Here's what one commentator said. Uh, it's on the screen. You is the saved, the people of God. He waits for them to be saved. God has an immense capacity for patience before he breaks forth in judgment. God endures endless blasphemies against his name, along with rebellion, murders, and the ongoing breaking of his law. Waiting patiently while he is calling and redeeming his own. It is not impotence or slackness that delays final judgment. It is patience. End quote. So, why is the return of Christ delayed? Why is it taken 2,000 years? Because God is patient. God is patient. As verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward the believers, toward the saved, toward the elect. And verse 9 goes on, and, and, and if you don't understand who the you is referring to there, you, you can really get messed up as you go on in verse 9. So verse 9 goes on to say that God does not wish that any should perish. Does that mean that God's desire is for the all the inhabitants, all the people of planet Earth to be saved, and, and God is frustrated and He's getting really disgusted and what's going on in planet Earth? No, that's not what it means. So what does he mean? Who, who's this any referring to here? Well, the same commentator said this, I quote, the any, the any of verse 9 must refer to those whom the Lord has chosen. He will call to complete the redeemed. In other words, the you. The any, the any is talking about the you. So since the whole passage here is about God destroying the wicked, his patience is not so that he can save all of them, but so that he can receive all his own. He can't be waiting for everyone to be saved, since the emphasis is that he will destroy the world and the ungodly. Those who do perish and go to hell, go because they are depraved and worthy only of hell and have rejected the only remedy, Jesus Christ. End quote. So, I hope... uh, I hope you found that helpful. <laughs> so, God is not saying that He wishes all to be saved. but He wishes all the believers, all those who are elect, to be saved. So we see here that God is patient. He's waiting for all of them to be saved. And when they're all saved and in His kingdom, then the next section, well, look at the next section. We see God's patience. We also see that God's patience has a limit. He is a very patient God, but His patience has a limit. So we asked, we asked this question, will God delay His judgment forever? Will God delay His judgment forever? Peter answers that question in verse 10. He says, but, (laughs) but, there's this contrast between God's patience and mercy, His timelessness, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So we see that God's judgment will not be delayed forever. There's, it's a future tense verb. 
in the Greek. This day of the Lord will come. Will come in the future. Hasn't happened yet. So what's going to come? That's the question. (laughs) What's going to come? Well, the day of the Lord will come. What's that? What is the day of the Lord? A lot of confusion on that. So I hope this helps. I have appreciated what Dr. Dwight Pentecost says in his book, Things to Come. I quote, The day of the Lord is that extended period of time beginning with God's dealings with Israel after the rapture of the church at the beginning of the tribulation period and extending through the second advent or coming and the millennial age unto the creation of the new heavens and new earth after the millennium. So, if you study context in the Old Testament in particular, every time you see the phrase, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, you you see some rather nasty, disturbing words, describing words coming with it. So you see things like darkness, fire, destruction, death, all this sort of stuff, wrath, comes with the phrase, the day of the Lord. So how do we know that's referring to judgment? Well, again, you look at the context of verse 10. Even verse 10 tells you some nasty stuff happening here. For example, it comes like a thief. Are thieves good? No, they're bad. (laughs) Okay, context is showing you this is bad stuff. This day of the Lord, bad stuff. All right, we see heavens passing away with a roar. Heavenly bodies being burned up and dissolved. Earth and works being exposed. Okay, all bad stuff. Alright, so the day of the Lord, whenever you see that in Scripture, think bad. Judgment. God's judgment. That's, that's what's coming when you see that. So, God's judgment is not going to be delayed forever. It's going to come. We also see that God's judgment is... It will be unexpected to those who are unprepared for it. Because notice verse 10 says it's going to come like a thief. It's going to come like a thief. Now, do you want to know when God's judgment's going to come? You want to know? Well, we, we kind of know, roughly. But Peter just dodges the question. <laughs> he just says it's going to come like a thief. Well, then you got to ask yourself, well, how does a thief come? How does a thief come? Any of you ever been robbed? It's a disturbing thing to happen, isn't it? You say, well, hey, I know, I know, I know. I know how a thief comes. See, a thief gives you a warning, right? A thief tells you ahead of time he's going to he's going to come. In fact, he may even send you a letter announcing his arrival plans, right? He's going to tell you exactly what day, what time, how he's coming, how many people are coming with him, what he's going to steal, right? No, of course not. He doesn't do that. Now, why would a thief not send you a letter? Why would he not warn you ahead of time that he's coming to steal your stuff? Because if he did that, you'd be prepared for him, right? You'd be prepared. You'd be ready. You'd be like that, that kid in uh, that movie Home Alone, if you've ever watched that, right? Home Alone. He knows the thieves are coming to steal, and coming into his house. So he's all prepared with booby traps and He's got his, his videos all set up and his things that are on fire and, you know, things that are going to hit and do destruction and drive the thieves away. You know, if I knew a thief was coming, I'd have 
I'd be pulling out all the guns out of my safe and teaching my family how to use them and setting up some traps, and I'm going to defend myself from these thieves. They're not coming into my house. So thieves don't announce their arrival plans. They come unexpectedly. And so that's the point that God's trying to make here. God's judgment's going to come unexpected to those who are unprepared. Now, as a believer, you should be prepared. You need to be watching, ready for this. And so the point is, you say, what is the point? Well, just as a thief is going to come suddenly, he's going to come unexpectedly, he's not going to make announcements, he's not going to give you a warning. So here's the point. End time judgment is going to begin when people least expect it. The unbelievers aren't going to be ready when God's judgment falls. And number three, God's judgment is going to be catastrophic. (laughs) I can't think of a better word to describe what's going on in verse 10. Now, some people look at verse 10 and they say, well, that's kind of strange. Why is God going to destroy this world? I mean, isn't He the one who created it? Isn't He the one in Genesis 1, verse 31, that said it's all very good? Yes, that's true. But the present earth we live on doesn't make sense without Genesis chapter 3. The fall has given us a curse. Romans 8 says the natural world we live in was subjected to futility when Genesis 3 entered the world. When the fall came, we now have a massive problem. So look what Romans 8 says here. Verse 20, it says the creation was subjected to futility. Not of its own will, but by the will of Him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. So at the moment, it's under a curse. Everything you see around you, you know, your section, those plants in your section, your pets, your rocks, <laughs> Everything you have is subjected to this futility. It is under the curse of sin. So it is no longer very good. And that's why, because of that curse of sin, God needs to totally destroy this present earth. He needs to get rid of this universe and start over. You say, well, how catastrophic is God's judgment? I'm glad you asked, because verse 10 tells us, number one, the heavens will pass away. He's got to wipe out the heavens. You say, what's the heavens? Well, that refers to the physical universe. All this physical universe. So the includes things like the planets, the stars, our sun, including other smaller things like comets, asteroids, so forth. God says all those things are going to cease to exist. I'm going to wipe them out. Number two, he says the elements will be burned up and dissolved. The elements will be burned up and dissolved. So, in the ancient world, when they used that word elements there, that expression referred to the basic building blocks of our material world. So the three basic building blocks of the material world would be, of course, earth, water, and wind. That's how they thought of that. And so, 
if that's true, then God's saying, hey, I'm, you know, the earth, the wind, the water, all that things, all that's going to be burned up and dissolved. All those things are going to be wiped clear to make way for something new. Verse 10 goes on to tell us, number three, the earth and works will be exposed. So that means planet earth is going to be destroyed. So don't fall in love with planet earth. <laughs> and you, if you, any of these people who think they can save planet earth, are um, they're in la-la fantasy land, right? So all the greenies out there, I got bad news for you. Uh, you can't save it. It's going to go up in one big ball of fire. <laughs> it's everything. Everything we do as well, because mankind's great works, as it says, are all going to be exposed. They're all going to be burned up. I mean, all the things that we as mankind love to boast about are all going to be destroyed. I mean, that includes, that goes for our great cities. So Auckland, Washington, D.C., London, Paris, Tokyo, Beijing, you know, all those cities, they're all going to go up in one big ball of fire. The great buildings like St. Peter's Basilica, the Taj Mahal, you name it. All those wonderful buildings, they're all going to be burned up one day. All the inventions that mankind has come with, come up with, all those works are going to be gone. Some have said the greatest invention is the World Wide Web. I was looking on the internet last night, you know, greatest, man's greatest inventions. Well, a lot of people think the World Wide Web. So, Sorry, you love the World Wide Web, Internet, whatever, you know, those sort of things. It's gone. Can't, there's no firewall that's going to be able to protect it from God. Uh, man's achievements going to be burned up as well. So say goodbye to the Great Wall of China, the Great Pyramids, anything that has great in front of it, it's gone. So all those things are going to be just destroyed in a moment. And so when, when sinners stand before the throne of God, remember we just read the end of Revelation chapter 20, they're going to be standing before God with nothing at the great white throne. Nothing, because it's all wiped away. No achievements, nothing to point to as evidence of their greatness, because it's gone. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. All gone. Because God says the earth and the works are going to be exposed. Well, number four, God says that His judgment will be final. Final. So you see those words in verse 10? Very descriptive words like, well, in my Bible, I see the word roar, burned, and dissolved. Some of your Bibles might talk about a great noise in replacing the word roar. See, those, those descriptive words are all showing here that God's judgment is Final. That, that word roar or great noise is connoting a, a whistling sound, a crackling sound as of objects being consumed by the flames. You ever heard that crackling sound in, in the fire? You ever made a huge bonfire, throw wood in it? That crackling of the wood. It's being consumed by the flames. The image refers to the sound of a great forest fire. Fortunately, I've never been in one. But I hear from people who have been there that a, that a forest fire just builds up to this uncontrollable ocean of flames. And it just sounds like a violent wind roaring through the trees. You know, it doesn't just rip leaves off the trees. It just devastates everything in its path. Leaves a charred, barren wasteland that is devoid of life. 
That's the point God's making. When His judgment comes, there will be nothing left. It will just be a charred, barren wasteland devoid of life. But then in verse 10, God describes His destruction as He's going to dissolve this universe. That, That word dissolve means to disintegrate. It carries the idea of something being broken down into its basic elements. It's what happens when atomic energy is released. If you've ever seen an atomic bomb like here, for example, uh, God, God takes all his various parts of, of the atom and, and, and splits them apart and does amazing things with that. But God's going to incinerate the universe. I don't think there's going to be a, 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 this, this, this idea of a World War III, you know, people pushing buttons and we all nuke each other to death. I don't think that's going to happen. Because God's going to destroy the earth with fire. He's going to incinerate this universe. He's going to disintegrate all the matter as we know it. And it appears here the elements are, are the atomic components in which matter is, is ultimately divisible, and which make up this, this composition of all the created matter in the universe. Everything has atoms. And within that, God can control them, of course. At the moment, Hebrews 1 says His hand is on it. But Peter means here, that he's talking about these atoms, these neutrons, these protons, electrons. They're going to disintegrate. God's judgment is going to be final. There's going to be nothing left of the physical universe as we know it. But that's not the end. Just the beginning. He says He will make all things new. We'll talk about that next time. But my friends, as we, we, we end today, on some rather bad news, the good news is coming, but uh, you, you need to take this truth seriously it's a solemn truth and we we shouldn't just study this in a careless fashion in a careless way and just kind of you know ho-hum through this in the remaining verses of this letter we're going to see how to apply this truth to our lives but peter's going to apply it in the daily living of our life what do we do with this truth all right we'll look at that next time But it would be wise for us at this point to just kind of pause. Peter wants you to remember. He wants you to think in a certain way. Ask yourself some questions. Number one, where will I be when God destroys the world? Where will you be when God destroys the world? So take it personally. Where will I be when God destroys the world? He's going to do it. He wants you to know the future. He's told you it's coming. Are you ready? Number two, is what I'm living for only destined to just vanish forever? Right? He says it's all going to be burned up and dissolved. Right? We spend a lot of time doing things, working in our gardens, on our farms, in our businesses, in our study, whatever it might be we, we do with our time and our energies and our money. As you do that, yes, you can glorify God in it, but don't forget what's ultimately going to happen to your house, to your car, to your farm, to your to to your stuff. It's all going to be burned up. It will not last forever. So ask yourself, what am I really living for? And number three, am I doing the will of God so that my works will glorify Him forever? Because, see, you you can't take it with you. 
but you can send it on ahead. That's the treasure principle I learned from a book. So you can't take it with you. You don't pull trailers behind hearses. <laughs> right? You can't take it with you. Look what happened to all those pharaohs who tried that, right? They all get their stuff stolen from them. Right? Except for Tutankhamun. But here's the point. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. There are things you can do now. Peter will give you some ideas here at the end of this chapter. There are some things in God's will now, some works you can do that will glorify Him and have eternal value. So ask yourself, am I doing the will of God so that my works will glorify Him forever? And if you do, praise God, because those works will last. When they go into the fire, they will be the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. But my friends, if your works are not the will of God... They are not eternal. They will be the chaff, the wood, the straw, all that sort of stuff that will just be burned up. So do the will of God so that your works will glorify Him forever. My friends, you have a decision to make. You can't sit on the fence on this one. So make your decision now before it's too late because God's judgment is coming. It is coming. He says so. His patience has a limit. So my friends, look to Christ. If you fear that one day you're going to be a part of this earth that's going to be destroyed and you're going to face God's judgment, you have hope in Christ. If your faith is in Christ alone and not in your good works, then you have hope of all people. You're not going to face God's judgment. You will be with Christ forever. So make your decision now before it's too late. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for allowing us to know some aspects of the future. May they encourage us. May we be exhorted to to look, to be ready, to be waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not fear Your judgment as believers, but any unbelievers. I pray that You would put Your fear into them. They would fear Your judgment. May they not desire to be a part of Your judgment. So may they run to Christ, the only One who can save them from Your wrath. May they see this as real. This is real. It's coming. You've promised it. And You will fulfill Your promises. But we as believers, may we share Your truth with the unbelievers so that they would know the truth and they would be able to escape the fire. May we be encouraged that You are accomplishing Your purposes and You do reign supreme over all of Your creation. That Christ is coming again and He's going to deal with all the false teachers and the scoffers and the ungodly who reject Christ. You're going to deal with them. We don't have to. Yes, we have an enemy, but You're going to deal with them. Thank You for these truths that we've seen from Peter, may we remember, may our minds be stirred up to think in wholesome ways. May we be stimulated that we would not be contaminated by the world's way of thinking, by the the scoffers and the false teachers of this world. May we think the way You want us to think, according to Your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.